0: Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke, chapter number one. Of course, during this Christmas season, we've been going through this series called Celebrating Christ. And it's really just been a verse-by-verse study through the first, it'll be the first two chapters. We've only really done the first chapter of uh, the book of Luke, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter. And uh, sometimes when you preach through, uh, do Bible studies like this, uh, sometimes people ask, you know, why don't you just do one chapter and one in one, uh, in one sermon, uh, but hopefully it's been apparent to you uh, that as we've broken down these passages, uh, there's a lot there, a lot to learn, a lot to cover. Uh, the Word of God is deep, and of course we could do it in one, in one, uh, in one s- service, but uh, I like to be able to dig into it. And if you remember, we started uh, several weeks ago, not last Sunday night, but the Sunday night before that, we started in Luke chapter 1, and I went through the first four verses in a sermon entitled, The Certainty of Those Things. And that wasn't really a Christmas uh, sermon as much as it was more of an introduction to the book of Luke. I don't know if you remember that. We, we looked at uh, those first four verses and we, we talked about the gospel according to Luke. And uh, then last Sunday, on Sunday morning, we did Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, in a sermon entitled The Angelic Birth Announcement of John the Baptist. And we really learned about uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias as parents. And then last Sunday night, we did Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, in a sermon called The Angelic Birth Announcement of Jesus Christ. And we saw how the angel Gabriel came to Mary, to announce the birth of Christ. This morning, of course, we did verses 39 through 56 and uh, what's commonly referred to or known as the Magnificat of Mary. And then tonight, we're going to finish up chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Excuse me, uh, yeah, 57 through 80. And uh, this, in this passage, just like in the morning, we saw that, that remember, we, we looked at that passage from, from Mary, that prayer or song of worship that she gave, and it's known as the Magnificat, because the Magnificat is a Latin word that means to magnify. And of course, the first stanza of that prayer, she says, my, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And in, in this uh, sermon, we're going to look at what's known as the Benedictus of Zacharias, and I'll explain that to you here in a minute. But let's look at some of the, just this, this introductory material here. In verse 57, of course, we have the arrival of John the Baptist, the Bible says, now Elizabeth's full time came, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son, and her neighbors, and I want you to notice this, and her cousins. Now the Bible does not specifically tell us that Mary was there for the birth of John, and, and she may not have been. We, we know this, that she conceived when Elizabeth was uh, six months uh, pregnant, and of course we saw this morning that she went to spend three months, she spent three months uh, with Uh, Elizabeth. So, of course, she went there when she was six months pregnant. That means she stayed till... She was nine months pregnant, so Mary either stayed till right before the birth of John or she might have stayed uh, till the birth of John. It's interesting because here in verse 58, the Bible tells us about Elizabeth that her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her and they rejoiced with her. And if you remember Mary, according to verse 36 of the same chapter, the Bible tells us uh, the, the angel Gabriel says to Mary about Elizabeth he says, Thy cousin Elizabeth. So, of course, Mary and Elizabeth were cousins, and here we're told that uh, her neighbors and her cousins heard. So, it may be very well uh, that Mary was there for uh, the birth of. Christ, or maybe she left right before, because of course she was expecting herself, and maybe she just did not want to experience that. And of course, there's a lot of pain that goes in with labor. Uh, not that I know, but I've, uh, I've been told. So verse 59, notice it says, and it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. Now if you remember, uh, when we, we several weeks back, when we started <laughs> Uh, This series, we we learned about Zacharias. Remember, he was in the temple, and Gabriel appears to him and tells him about the fact that his wife, who's not only barren, but now well-stricken, is uh, uh, going to conceive. And it's a miraculous uh, conception that God allows them to have. And he uh, foretells of the coming of John the Baptist. And if you remember, Zacharias has a a lapse in faith, and he doesn't really believe it, and he questions it. And as a result, Gabriel tells him that he's not going to speak. He becomes dumb uh, or mute, unable to speak. Uh, He says, until these things come to pass, and now these things are coming to pass. John the Baptist is born, not known as John yet, and they go to circumcise him. Look at verse 59, last part of verse 59, uh, and they called him. Zacharias. So the family, the cousins, the people that are there, they just decide his name is Zacharias after the name of his father. And this was pretty typical in that region of the world and in that type of culture where you, they would name you after your father, especially if you're the firstborn son. Uh, so they called him Zacharias. They made an assumption there that his name should be Zacharias, verse 60. And his mother, Elizabeth, answered and said, not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table. Apparently, nine months is not enough time to learn sign language, so he's still writing things down for them. And he asked them for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. So, of course, we see here the arrival of John the Baptist, of John. But with the arrival of John, we also see the restoration of Zacharias. Notice verse 64. And his mouth, this is referring to Zacharias, because remember, he was he was dumb, he was mute all these all these months, and his mouth was opened immediately. So as soon as Zacharias wrote on that writing pad, his name is John, and they all marveled, immediately God restored his speech, and his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake, and praise God, and fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, "What manner of child shall this be?" And the hand of the Lord was with him, and his fathers and his father Zechariah was filled. With the Holy Ghost and prophesied saying. So now we have uh, Zacharias who has his ability to speak again. The Bible says he's filled with the Holy Ghost and he begins to prophesy. He begins to uh, preach. He begins to have this uh, expression of, of love towards the Lord. And he begins in verse 68. And I want you to notice the first word he says, blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he had visited and redeemed his people. In the same way that, and we have some similarities here, of course, between Mary and Elizabeth, between Mary and Zacharias. If you remember, uh, both both couples, both pregnancies were announced by uh, Gabriel. Both pregnancies were miraculous, though one was, of course, the most miraculous, the, the virgin conception. Uh, but both were miraculous births. If you remember, both Mary and Zacharias questioned, one out of criticism, one out of curiosity. And now I want you to notice another parallel between Mary and Zacharias, that they both have this uh, this 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 uh, speech, this time of prayer and uh, consecration to the Lord where they speak out uh, in prayer and in prophesying and in song and in worship. For Mary, it's referred to uh, as the Magnificat because of the fact that she begins her speech with saying, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And for Zacharias, it's known as the Benedictus because of the first word there in verse 68, blessed. Blessed. And Benedictus is just a Latin term for that idea of blessings or being blessed. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. So just like we did this morning, we're going to break down this speech. We broke down the speech by Mary. Tonight, we're going to do the same thing for Zacharias and break down the speech uh, for Zacharias. And of course, I'd encourage you to, to take some notes on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some things. There's three things I'd like you to notice from the speech from Zacharias. The first one is... Uh, the first thing we notice is the prophecy of Christ or the prophecies of Christ. Of course, there in verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, verse 69, and hath raised up a horn of salvation. That, that phrase, and I don't have time to develop it tonight because I've got a lot of Bible verses I, I want to show you tonight. We're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptures. And for me to say that, Mean means something because we look at a lot of scriptures anyway. Uh, so just be ready, you know, start stretching your fingers or whatever you need to do. But when you see this phrase, uh, the horn of salvation, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that John was born, but uh, Zacharias begins where we should all begin with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says about God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation, reference to Jesus for us in the house of his servant David a lineage a reference to the lineage of Christ the physical birth of Christ the fact that he's born of Mary a daughter of David notice verse 70 as he spake by his holy prophets which have been since the world began. Zacharias begins by speaking about Christ, and the first thing that he draws our attention to is the fact that the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, was something that was well documented in prophecy. There's many prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of In the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here he tells us that God has raised up this horn of salvation. In verse seventy, he says, As he spake by the mouth of the holy prophets. He says this was prophesied in the Old Testament. He says, Which hath been since the world began. I'd like you to go with me. Keep your place there in Luke. Obviously, that's our text for tonight. Go with me if you want to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. First book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Genesis chapter 3. While you turn there, let me remind you that in Revelation 13 and verse 8, the Bible says this about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us here that Uh, Zacharias tells us that the the, the birth of Christ, the coming of the Messiah was something that was spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets, which have been since the world began. And really since the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3 there, uh, we don't get very far into the book of Genesis till we have the first mention or the first prophecy of the coming Messiah. Of course, in Genesis chapter 3, we've already had the fall of man. Adam and Eve have sinned, and as a result, uh, God has to deal with them, and God has to explain to them the consequences, but in the midst of dealing with that, in the midst of telling Adam what his consequences will be, and Eve what her consequences will be, and even the serpent what his consequences would be, he says this, Genesis 3 and verse 15, he says, this is God speaking, to the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between thee, referring to the serpent, and the woman, referring to Eve, or Eve's descendants, and between thy seed, here are the descendants, and Her seed. Now, of course, when we're talking about her seed, Eve's seed, we're talking about all mankind, all humanity, because we all go back to Adam and Eve. God says, I'm going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman or humanity between thy seed and her seed. And notice what God says about the enmity or the conflict between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. He says, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, the heel is a part of the body that if you injure it, it's not life-threatening. And here God tells us that there was going to come a seed from Eve. And of course, the chronology of Christ and the lineage of Christ goes back, especially here in the book of Luke, all the way back to Adam. This deals with the humanity of Christ. The fact that Christ was a descendant not only of David, but of Abraham and of Adam himself, of course. And he talks about the fact that the devil was going to bruise the heel of that seed, the heel of that coming Messiah, meaning what? He was going to injure him, but it was not going to be uh, fatal. It was not going to be, uh, 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 you know, just complete. It was not, that was not going to be the end of it. And of course, we know that Satan did injure and hurt the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Cal- uh, Calvary. But though Satan thought he won when he only bruised his heel, when Jesus resurrected from the grave, the Bible says here that he bruised the head of Satan. Now, when you take a, a, a wound to the head, that's more of a fatal, more serious. And the idea here is that Satan, yes, he was going to hurt Christ, but Christ was going to be victorious in the end. And this is really the first prophecy or uh, mention of the, the coming Messiah. Now, I'd, I'd like to sh- just kind of show you a few things, if, if it's okay. Uh, go with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. If you open your Bible just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Isaiah. Zacharias mentions the fact that this event, the birth of Christ, was spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets, uh, which hath been since the world began. And Jesus, his life, and I want you to know that it's not just his birth. His birth, his life, and even especially his death is highly prophesied in the Old Testament. There's lots of very specific prophecies. When you read them, it's clear that it is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm not going to obviously take the time to show you those tonight. We can spend a whole series looking at those. What I'd like to do is just show you some very specific prophecies about the birth of Christ. Because Zacharias mentions the fact that uh, this was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament, and he's right. There are many Old Testament specific prophecies about the coming Messiah, his specific birth, and I would like to just share with you a few of them. Maybe you can write this down as some good information for you to share, maybe with somebody else. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. This is probably the most famous of the prophecies of the birth of Christ. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign... Notice the words, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 is a prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, keep your finger right there in Isaiah and go with me, if you would, to the book, first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, and let me show you the fulfillment of this prophecy. I want you to notice that there are very specific Uh, prophecies about the birth of Christ and they were fulfilled right to the T. And when you understand prophecy, you need to understand that the writers of these Old Testament passages are not speaking, you know, a few weeks before the birth of Christ. I mean, our, our understanding is that Isaiah is writing hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and he said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's, uh, uh, that is that uh, is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, when the Bible says, behold, the New Testament says, behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And of course, if you read further on there, it's clear that it's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, keep your finger right there in Matthew, because we're going to come back to it for a little bit. And go back to the Old Testament. If you kept your place in Isaiah, just flip over to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. Go to Jeremiah, keep your finger in Matthew, and let me just give you another example of a prophecy. The first one we saw was that of the virgin birth. There's a second, another, and again, I'm not going to show you every prophecy we could show you. I'm just going to kind of show you, highlight just a few of them, just the the big ones for you. Jeremiah 31, and there's a reason why I'm showing this to you, so just kind of stay with me. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 15. Jeremiah 31, 15, the Bible says this, Thus thus saith the Lord, excuse me, thus saith the Lord, notice what it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. So in Jeremiah 31, there's this prophecy. And I'm sure Jeremiah himself probably did not really understand what this prophecy was about. But he was prophesying about the fact that there would be a voice, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Why? Weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children, because they were not. And that phrase, is not, was not, were not, in our Bible, is a reference to death, meaning because they were dead. Now keep your finger right there in Jeremiah 31, go to Matthew chapter 2. I'm sure Jeremiah had no idea how this prophecy would be fulfilled or how it would be connected to the coming of the Messiah. But we have the full story. We know in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, the Bible says then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, and if you remember, the wise men showed up in Jerusalem and they said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod heard that, because he's the king of the Jews, he says, you know, tell me when you find him, tell me where he is so I can come worship him. And of course, he wants to kill him. The wise men are told about this in a dream and they don't go back to Herod. As a result, verse 16, then Herod, when he, was, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So when the wise men don't come back and tell him where Jesus is, Herod decides, well, I'm just going to, it's been about, you know, uh, based off what the wise men told me, we're looking for a child that's about two years old or less than two years old. So he has all the two-year-olds in Bethlehem and in the surrounding coast put to death. And in verse 17, the Bible says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel, Rachel is a reference there to all of the mothers of the descendants of Jacob that are there at that time. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. And we see this specific prophecy In the Old Testament, we're told, a virgin shall conceive. And they probably thought, I wonder how that's going to be. And then we get to the book of Matthew, and we're told that Mary uh, has Gabriel show up. And Luke tells us that Mary has Gabriel show up. And she's told that the Holy Ghost will come upon her, and that she would conceive as a virgin as a result. And we see that fulfilled prophecy. Then Jeremiah, I'm sure not really understanding the whole thing, says, I can tell you this. When the Messiah comes, there's going to be a lot of mamas crying, a lot of Rachel's weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for their children, and I'm not sure why. And then we're given the Christmas story, and we find out that Herod has all the two-year-olds put to death in his chase of Christ, and we see another very specific fulfilled prophecy. Let me give you another one. Keep your finger there in, in Matthew. Go, you're there in, in Jeremiah. Go, go to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, you're there in Jeremiah, if you just go past the book of Lamentations, past Ezekiel, past Daniel, into the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, look at verse 1. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, the Bible says this, When Israel was a child, then I loved him. I want you to notice this prophecy about Christ, And called my son out of Egypt. Here Hosea is prophesying about the fact that God was going to call his son out of Egypt. And again, when Hosea prophesied this, many people I'm sure were probably confused by this because they're thinking to themselves, okay, well, we're not, we're not living before Moses here. We're, we're hundreds of years after Moses. The children of Israel already came out of Egypt. God has already called his children out of Egypt. But here Hosea is prophesying that Israel uh, 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 is going to be called, th- that, that God is going to call his son out of Egypt. And then we go to Matthew. Keep your finger right there in Hosea. We're coming back to it. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. We go to Matthew and we pick up the Christmas story and we see yet another fulfilled prophecy. Again, understanding that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea are living hundreds of years, maybe 600, 700 years before Christ. And they said, hey, you know what? When Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, when the Son of God comes, God is going to call His Son out of Egypt. And I'm sure people thought, what does that mean? But in Matthew chapter 2, we read, of course, as a result, as a result of the fact that Herod had planned to kill all of the two-year-olds and under there in Bethlehem and the surrounding coast, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou uh, there until I bring thee word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. See, after the wise men left, then an angel, the Bible tells us, appeared to Joseph and said, you got to take your wife and you got to take that new Born Jesus and get him out of here. You need to arise and go and flee to Egypt until I tell you when to come back. Verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Verse 15, and was there until the death of Herod, of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. So again, we see another prophecy fulfilled in the birth and life of Christ. Let me give you another one, just, just, just to make the point. Go to Micah chapter 5. Keep your place right there in Matthew. Go to Micah chapter 5. You're there in Hosea. You go past Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah 5 and verse 2, the Bible says this, but thou, Micah 5, two, Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Here we have a prophecy of where the Messiah was going to be born in this little town of Bethlehem. And I want you to notice that it is a prophecy of Christ. If you look at the last part of verse 2, it says, whose goings forth have been from old, he says, there's going to be someone born in Bethlehem, but he's been around from old, in fact, he's been around, don't miss the last two words of verse 2, from everlasting, and by the way, Jesus has always been, he's always been the son of God, he's always been a man, he's always been a person, he's always been the second member of the Godhead, he was never created, he was never uh, uh, made, he's been from everlasting, But in Bethlehem, He became incarnate, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. This, of course, was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. If you look at verse 1, go back to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says this, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in, notice, Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. And again, we could spend all night looking at prophecies. I, I, I don't want to do that. But I just wanted to show you enough to show you there's all sorts of prophecies in the Old Testament. And look, we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about the prophecies of the crucifixion of Christ, uh, prophecies of the resurrection of Christ, prophecies of the ministry of Christ. We could spend a lot of time looking at those. all I showed you tonight is four prophecies and we could look at more. But I'm just going to show you four. I showed you four in regards to the birth of Christ when Jesus was born. And Zechariah says, hey, this is, referring to the birth of Christ, he says, this is what the prophets have been prophesying about from the beginning of of the world. He says, this is what the, the prophets told us, the coming Messiah. This is what we've been told about. Now you say, well, why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons, but let me just give you one quick application. Go to 1 Thessalonians if you would. You can find the T-books in the New Testament. They're all clustered together. 1, Second Thessalonians, 1, Second Timothy, and Titus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me say this. As Bible-believing Christians, we come to God in faith. You should know that, of course. We don't come... To God because of logic, and we don't come to God because of reasoning. The Bible says that, that we come to God in faith, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So we must come to God in faith, believing that God is who He, said, uh, who he says He is, and, and, and we understand that. But let me just say this, and we talked about it a few weeks ago when I preached about the certainty of those things, the beginning there of Luke, where Luke emphasized the fact that he took the time to find the eyewitnesses. He took the time to uh, to meet with, to interview the eyewitnesses, and he wrote down in an orderly fashion the events of the things that we believe. And again, not that we believe it because of eyewitnesses, not that we believe it because of logic, but God himself says, let us reason together. So I want you to know we come to God in faith, but the faith that we have is not an illogical faith. We come to God in faith, but the faith that we have can be reasoned, can be logic, can be thought about. We, we, We have a faith, but it's not a blind faith. It is a faith that has been documented by the eyewitnesses. And the point that I'm making is this. You and I believe the Word of God because it is in truth the Word of God. But with that, there are things within the Bible that affirm the Bible as the Word of God. And one of those things is fulfilled prophecy. The fact that God had prophets prophesy certain things about the Messiah hundreds of years ago, and then those things came to fruition exactly how they were prophesied tells us and shows us that this is not just a book. This is the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, look at verse 13. For this cause, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. For this cause also think we God without ceasing. Because, notice what Paul says, when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The Bible you and I hold in our hands, it is in fact the Word of God. And we can reason it. We can reason it. And i preached about this in the past. One way to reason it is to say, look, man could not have orchestrated fulfilled prophecy. And of course, there's other things in the Bible. There, there's science that was revealed to us um, that uh, hundreds of years before man caught up to it, and man's science caught up. There's others things that we can see. There's little things that got put in the Word of God to show us this is not just a book. I don't know about you. I understand that we come to God in faith, but I, I, I'm, I'm thankful to the fact that we do not have an illogical faith. Brother, uh, Brother Johnny and Mister Tamara was just talking to me this afternoon about a family member who believes in a religion called Odinism. And this is actually very, it's something that's catching on because I've heard of other people uh, believing this and so have they. And it's actually just an old Viking, an old religion of, of, of Vikings, you know, believing that they're going to go to Valhalla, you know, after, after uh, death. And um, it's just funny to me because, you know, we were talking about it and they were telling me like, yeah, they, they, they believe that their creation story you know, we have a creation story. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Their creation story is that a cow, you know, excuse my language, pooped. Now I don't know how big this cow was. It might have been a celestial cow. I'm not sure. But this cow pooped. And on that cow poop patty, the uh, uh, earth was formed. And, and, and here's, here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. I'm glad that we don't have an illogical faith. I'm glad that we don't have a ridiculous faith. I'm glad that we don't have uh, this faith that's just, just mythology, stupidity. Hey, our religion requires faith, but it doesn't require stupidity. It's a logical faith. It's a reasoning faith. It's the kind of faith that tells you there must be a God. If someone, uh, hundreds of years ago, was revealed by God that when the sun would come, certain things would happen, and then it happened. That's not a cow pooping, if, if you'd excuse the language. There's, there's the, these, all, all these uh, types of, of new religions out there. My wife and I have been knocking doors in a certain apartment complex for a little bit. And in that complex, I, 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 I ran into two different ladies at, at different times, and they, I'm assuming they know each other or something, I, I don't know, but they, they both told me about this religion and it, it sounds like some sort of a tribal type thing where, uh, you know, the spirits of the ancestors come upon you, and of course they're talking, they're telling me that the spirits of the ancestors come upon them, and I'm thinking about, it, it's, yeah, it's the devil's coming upon you. Right this you know esoteric spiritual mysticism and and yesterday when I was talking to this lady and she she's telling me you know I, I don't just believe the Bible I mean the Bible just a book it's just a book and it, mine is more of a a, a a spiritual you know this emotional this esoteric it's not it's not you know uh, 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 binding it, it, it's not physical I just it's just the spirit of my ancestors and I'm thinking to myself you know what what you don't understand is that the Bible is a spiritual book. It is the word of God. And we do not receive it as the word of man. It is the word of truth. And we believe it because it's God's word. We believe it because my sheep hear my voice and, I, and, and, and we know him and we understand that. But there's also just logical reasons to believe. Now, religion is not a joke. So we see the prophecies of Christ. And the prophecies of Christ, obviously they do a lot for us, but one thing they should do is to build our faith. This is not just a made-up story. This really happened. We know for a fact that these documents of the prophets were written at the time that they say they're written. It's not made up. Let me just show you something else real quickly about this idea of the narrative. Go back to Luke chapter 1 if you would. I want to show you something because sometimes people, people, they they make up these things and they'll act like, just somebody decided one day to sit down and write, I'm going to tell a story about this Jesus. You know, once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a guy named Jesus. First of all, we know that can't be the case because like Luke told us, Dr. Luke told it, reminded us, that many have taken in hand. Many witnesses said, I got to write this down. We got to document this. What's interesting to me and it's easy when you read the Bible to just kind of read through things and, and, and to not really see it. I understand we're, we're all busy and we're trying to just get through our Bible reading and all that, and I get that. That's one of the reasons you come to church to help, be helped in the breakdown. When, when I read this story, I see a detail here that, to me, it makes me think, this is a detail that has no consequence, there's no reason for it to be mentioned, other than just to highlight the fact that this was not written by men. Because here's what I believe, that if you sat down, if you and I were a bunch of atheists and we were tasked, you know, you sit down and I want you to write about the story of Jesus Christ. We're going to make up this story. We're going to have this big movement. We're going to lie to everybody. We're just going to tell people that there was this virgin that had a birth and we're going we're to make up this whole thing. And you and I were tasked to write down this story. There's some things in this story that you and I would not write. In fact, there's some things in the story that they're only in there because they actually happened. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 62. Remember that Zacharias is mute. He's dumb. He's unable to speak. And actually, look at verse 60. In verse 59, they said, they're going to name him Zacharias, verse 60. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. On you not know verse 62? You wouldn't have wrote this in, and I wouldn't have wrote this in if we were just sitting down to write a story. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. Think about that statement. They made signs to his father. They're like making signs. You know, I don't know what they're making signs. He obviously doesn't have speak sign language because he asked for someone to write on. But you know, they're, they're making signs, what they should call. I don't know what signs they're making, but they're like, you know, baby, name, what do you want to call him, right? Think about the fact that Zacharias is not deaf. He's mute. He's not deaf. He's dumb. He, he, he can't speak. His hearing's fine. But haven't you met people like this? You ever meet somebody, and they start talking to somebody, and they're like, uh, no speaking English? And then the person just starts talking louder? Yeah. I, I want a quesadilla. And it's like, they're, they're not deaf. They don't speak the language. But isn't this how human beings are? You're talking to somebody who's, who can't speak, and we start making this t- languages. It's like, I'm not deaf. I mean, look, look at it. Luke 62. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called, and he asked for a writing table and wrote, I'm mute, not deaf, my hearing's fine. That's what I would have wrote. Why have you been making signs to me for nine months? I can hear you. I didn't lose my hearing. I lost, but he, he, this is just a deal. You say, why would Luke add this to the narrative? Here's why he added it, because that's what happened. Amen. And those are the type of details that if you and I sat down to write down a myth, write down a story that never actually happened, we wouldn't write a detail like that because we wouldn't think to lie that deeply. But it wasn't a lie. There's a detail like that, this funny kind of thing that they're making signs to him and he's like, I can hear you. Just give me something to write with you, idiot. Why would this be added to the narrative? Here's why. Because it actually happened. Because it's not a made-up story. Because Luke is going... To the interview, I imagine Luke maybe sat down with Zacharias or sat down with Elizabeth and he's got his pad there to journal and he's telling me about the birth of John the Baptist and what happened next and what happened next. And I could imagine Zacharias maybe as an old man sitting there speaking to Luke and saying, and let me tell you something, these idiots for nine months, they kept making signs to me like I couldn't hear them. I was deaf. I could hear everything they were saying. And Luke says, oh, that's good. Let me write that down. Why do you write it down? Because it happened. Here's all I'm telling you. This book is not fiction. It's not a product of man. It's the word of God. And when we received it, we received it as it is, in fact, the word of men. No, the word of God, not the word of men. But as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So we see, first of all, the prophecy of Christ I'd like you to notice, secondly, go back to Luke chapter 1 there, I'd like you to notice the promise of Christ. Look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. This is Zacharias speaking. Notice verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. Here we have Zacharias speaking about the fact that God made a promise to their fathers. He made a covenant with their fathers. And then he's very specific about which covenant because there's multiple covenants in the Old Testament. Notice verse 73. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Zacharias makes a reference here to the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant, I would say, go with me if you would to Genesis chapter 12, if you would, first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Of all the covenants... The Abrahamic Covenant is probably the most well-known of the covenants, and it's probably the covenant that has the most, you know, people do the most about or the most to do about is the Abrahamic Covenant. Why? Because the Abrahamic Covenant is a covenant that God made with Abraham, that God would give Abraham a descendancy. And today we have most evangelical Christians being dispensationalists. They really prop up the Abrahamic Covenant because they're Zionists, and they'll say, "Look, the Abrahamic Covenant. You know, we got to bless the children of Israel, and we, we got to bless." And, and they're talking about blessing a bunch of unbelieving Jews. And look, I'm not I'm not being a racist here. Um, obviously, unbelievers, all unbelievers are unbelievers. They need the gospel. But as a Bible-leaving Christian, we should not make an exception. We should say, Muslims are going to hell, You know, Hindus are going to hell, all these unbelievers are going to hell, oh, oh but the Jews, they, they get a special pass. No, no, they, they're, they're unbelievers, and if they die without Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. But there's a big to-do main of the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to see it, Genesis 12, look at verse 1. Now the Lord has said unto Abraham, this is what Zacharias is referring back to when he talked about the fact that God is going to perform the mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swear to our father Abraham. This is what he's referring to, Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So today we have the Zionists who like to take the Abrahamic covenant and say, well, God told Abraham that I will bless them who bless thee, and curse thee who curse thee, and in, all, and, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And he was talking about the fact that God was going to give him a great nation, and he was going to give him this descendancy, and therefore, we have to bless the Jews. That's what they say. I want you to notice something, if you go back to Luke, chapter 1, that not only did both Mary and Zacharias have an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant, the oath which he sware unto our fathers. It's interesting to me that both Zacharias and Mary also understood something that most evangelical Christians do not understand today. And it is this, and here's, and here's what, the point that I'm making. Zacharias brings up the oath that God made with their fathers that God made with Abraham because he's saying this, not necessarily the birth of John, but all of these events, the coming Messiah, the birth of Christ, this is the fulfillment of that oath. We didn't look at it this morning. I told you we'd skip it and look at it tonight. I want you to see it. Let's go back to when Mary's speaking in verse 55, the Magnificat of Mary. Notice what Mary says. Luke chapter 1, verse 55 And he, talking about God, spake to our fathers, to Abraham. Again, Mary making a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Notice what she says. And to his seed. Do you see that word seed? And to his seed forever. I want you to notice that Mary here is speaking to God about the coming Messiah, Jesus in her womb. And she says, He spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed. She's referring to the seed in her womb forever. You know what's interesting to me? Is that Mary did not only understand the Abrahamic covenant, she also understood something that most Bible college graduates don't understand, which is this. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in her seed. In Jesus Christ. And Zacharias brings up the Abrahamic covenant as well. And I want you to notice there in verse 55 that she says, And to his seed. To his seed. Because there's a word there that's highlighted to us by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. Let's look at it real quickly. Galatians chapter 3, if you would. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. She said seed, singular. You say, why does that matter? Here's why. Galatians 3 and verse 16. Notice what the Bible says. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. What is that referring to? The Abrahamic covenant. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Notice, and he saith not to seeds. See that S at the end? Plural. And to make sure you understand he's talking about plural, he says, As of many. He said, God didn't make that promise to Abraham and to all the seeds, all the descendants and Jews of of Abraham. He said, God made that promise to Abraham. He said, now Abraham, now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, he says, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. You say, what was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant? What was the purpose? It was that God was going to give Abraham a seed, and that seed would bless the entire world. You say, oh, he's talking about Seinfeld. No, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and Mary understood that when she said, as you spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. You're there in Galatians 3. Just just to, to be sure, look at verse 9. Because, see, the dispensationalists today, they say, you, 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 got, you, got the, you got the Israel and the church confused. You've got Israel and New Testament believers confused. No, no, we don't have anything confused. And, it, and if that's what you think, then, then Paul had them confused. If that's what you think, then the New Testament has them confused. Because in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says this, So then, they which be of faith. Isn't that you and I? Amen. We're saved by faith. So then, they which be of faith, notice, are blessed with faithful Abraham. Amen. No, the, 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 the blessing of Abraham goes to the Jews. No, no, they that be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. You say, who, who is the blessing of Abraham? It's not, bless the unbelieving Antichrist Jews. Hey, you want the blessing of God? Bless the people of God, the children of God. You say, who are the children of God? Who are the people of God? Those that be of faith. Let's look at it more clearly. Look at verse 14. Galatians 3, verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, might come on the Gentiles. I mean, how? Can it get any clearer than that? I don't know how to make it more clear than that. No, 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 that's for the Jews. Uh, It says it's for the Gentiles. Well, how, how does the blessing of Abraham come on the Gentiles? Through Jesus Christ. Because it's always been about Jesus Christ. Because the promise is about not seeds, but thy seed, which is Christ. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we, Gentile believers, might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, we receive the promise through Jesus Christ. Brethren, I speak unto the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Not to Abraham and his seed, where the promise was made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, unto thy seed which is Christ. Let me just show you one last verse. Look at verse 29. Galatians 3, verse 29. And if ye be Christ... Now, let me ask you something. Are the unbelieving Jews, are they Christ when they reject Christ? When they blaspheme Christ? He says, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Look, the Bible is very clear about this. What's interesting to me is that Mary wasn't confused about it either. What's interesting to me is that Zacharias was not confused about it. When God began to move, when Gabriel showed up and announced John and announced Jesus, Zacharias said, this is the fulfillment of the oath that God made to Abraham. When Mary found out that she was with child, she understood that this is what God spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So I said number one, go back to Luke chapter one there. We saw the prophecy of Christ. Then we saw the promise of Christ. Let me give you the last point, we'll finish up. Then we see the prophet of Christ. Some people might think when Zacharias is saying this, these things, that he's talking about his son John. So Zacharias makes sure that we understand he's not, when he's talking about the horn of salvation, he's not talking about John. In verse 74, he says that he would grant us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And then in verse 76, I want you to notice, he, he shifts gears. He says, and thou, because remember, John has now been born. He says, and thou child. So he wants to make it clear. I have not been talking about my son, John. I've been talking about the horn of salvation, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then in verse 76, he shifts gears, and then he, he looks at John, and he says, And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. And we saw that a few weeks ago, that that's a prophecy in Malachi about the one who would come before the Messiah, that, uh, that Elijah would come. And of course, we know that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the place, to make straight the way. Don't you notice what Zechariah says about his son, the prophet of Christ, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. He talks about the fact that John was going to preach the gospel. And I, I, I want to defend John here for a minute because people often will try to, and those who teach the repent of your sins heresy, will try to use John as an example of repent of your sins. And and, and I just want to draw your attention there in verse 77. Zacharias told us what John was going to preach. And remember, Zacharias at this point is filled with the Holy Ghost prophesying. He says to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. By the way, that's how salvation happens. Salvation is not You know, I defend the sinner's prayer and the fact that we ought to pray with people and we ought to confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. But let me just be clear. Salvation is not praying a prayer with someone. Now, if they believe, if they have faith, then they should in faith call upon Christ for salvation. But going around just trying to get people to pray a prayer so you can go back to your soul winning group and say, I got 77 saved. It's like you've been out for 10 minutes. You know, I got 12 people saved. That's not, no, you didn't. Well, why, why, why could I get 20 people saved in 20 minutes? Here's why. Because to get somebody saved, you need to give knowledge of salvation. You need to actually explain some things. They need to understand some things. There's some things that need to be understood they're a sinner, that their sin has condemned them to hell, that Jesus Christ was the payment for our sin, that he was the son of God, that he came to this earth and he lived a sinless life, that that he died to pay for our sins, and that we can call upon him for salvation, and we receive that, it's a gift, it's not of works, and once we have it, we can never lose it. Look, there's a transfer of knowledge to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. But you got the repent of your sins crowd, right? Go to Matthew 21, real quickly. Oh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. So we're looking at a lot of verses. I know, I told you. We're trying to make up for all the Bible reading you didn't do this week. (laughs) Matthew 21. Excuse me, I keep saying that. Matthew 3, I want you to Matthew 3. We're going to go to Matthew 21 in a minute. Go to Matthew 3. You have to repent of your sins crowd. And let me just say this. If somebody teaches, and obviously I understand that there's a whole spectrum of the repent of your sins crowd. But if somebody teaches that you have to stop sinning or turn from your sin in order to be saved, that's a work salvation. The Bible says "And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. If you teach somebody you got to stop drinking alcohol, you got to stop doing drugs, you got to stop doing something in order to be saved, that's works. And here's what people will say. They'll say, well, John taught that you have to repent of your sins to be saved. I had somebody say this to me a while ago. John the Baptist taught you got to repent of your sins to be saved. I said, oh, really? Uh, where did he say that? Where does the Bible say that? They said, oh, man, man, let me show you. Matthew chapter 3. It took me to this passage I'm taking you right now. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They said, see, they're right there. John taught you have to repent of your sins. And I said, "Um, I see, here's what I see, verse 2, and saying, I see this, repent ye, but where does it say, repent ye of your sins? And they're like, oh, that's implied. No, no, you added that. In fact, did you know that there's nowhere, nowhere in the whole entire Bible will you ever find this phrase in regards to salvation, repent of your sins? Well, well, he taught repent. I didn't say he didn't teach repentance. I'm asking, where did he teach you got to repent of your sin in order to be saved? Because the Bible clearly records for us what it is that John preached. Let me show it to you. Matthew 21, look at verse 32. Matthew 21, verse 32. Those are, well, John taught you how to repent. Repent you for the kingdom of heaven is ahead. Hey, I'm not against repentance. Repentance is a Bible word. I'm not against the idea of repenting. But I am against somebody teaching you that you have to repent of your sin. That's works. You have to stop sinning. That's adding works to salvation. Well, well if, if, then, then what is it that John taught? Okay, Matthew 21, verse 32. Notice what Jesus said. If you have a red-letter edition Bible, these words are in red because this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he says about John, he says, for John, referring to John the Baptist, came unto you in the way of righteousness and ye, notice, believed him not. Why does he emphasize believe? Because that's what you need for salvation. And ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots, notice what they did, believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, don't miss it, repented not afterwards. Jesus said, hey, you know what? You know what you failed to do, scribes and Pharisees? You failed to believe what John was telling you. The publicans and the harlots believed him. And when they believed him, what you should have done is repented. Does that turn from your sins? Look at it. Repented not afterward. What would have happened if they would have repented That ye might believe him. So, what is he talking about? He's saying, Look, you didn't believe him. You know what you should have repented of? Your unbelief and started to believe. You say, what, what kind of repentance is needed for salvation? Here's the repentance that's needed for salvation. I'm trusting in my works. I'm a Catholic who's trusting in my works, trusting in the fact that I got catechized, trusting in the fact that I go to the confessional booth. I'm a Pentecostal who's trusting the fact that I got baptized, trusting in the fact that I cleaned up my life. I'm a whatever false religion. I'm trusting in something other than Jesus. I'm going to stop trusting in that and trust in Jesus. That's repentance for salvation. That's different than I used to drink and now I don't drink anymore. That doesn't do anything as far as salvation. That works. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness and ye believed him not, but the public in the heart believed him and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterwards that ye might believe him. See, if they would have repented for salvation, they would have gone from unbelief to belief. How about someone who believes in this celestial pooping cow? How can they get saved? Well, they got to stop believing in the pooping cow. And start believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does a Muslim get saved? They got to stop believing in Allah and start believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does a Hindu get saved? They got to stop believing in all their seven million gods and start believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the repentance needed for salvation. Let me show it to you again. Acts 19, verse 4, just to make, make the point clear. Acts 19, verse 4. You're there in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 19, verse 4. Acts 19 and verse 4, the Bible says this, Then said Paul. Now in Matthew 21-32, Jesus told us what John was teaching. In Acts 19-4, now Paul is going to teach us. He's going to tell us what John the Baptist was teaching. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. John was baptizing people into repentance. Okay, well what exactly was he doing when he did that? John, notice, then said Paul. This is Paul speaking. John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, what is it that John was saying to the people when he was encouraging them to repent? Here's what he was saying. That they should believe on him which on, on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So what, what is it that John was telling people? He was telling them that they should believe on Jesus just like we tell people they should believe on Jesus, because that's the only real gospel. Amen. So Zacharias teaches us here that John preached the gospel to give knowledge of salvation unto his people for the remission of their sins. I want you to notice, not only did John preach the gospel, but he also pointed people to Jesus. We'll, we'll do this quickly. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 78. Uh, I realize i got to finish up, but let me just kind of share these things with you. And, and, and... I don't know. I'm just going to share this with you, okay? Sorry. Luke 1, verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God. I don't want to preach another sermon. I want to be done with Luke chapter 1, all right? So can we just do it? Some of you. If you need to take a nap, take a nap. Luke 1, 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby, notice this word, the day spring from on high hath visited us. He's talking about Remember he started to talk about his son and thou child shall be called the prophet of the highest for thou shalt be before the face of the lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins now he shifts back and says here's what my son john is going to preach about and teach about through the tender mercy of our god whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us he's talking about the fact that the birth of jesus christ could be referenced as the dayspring from on high hath visited us. Let's just run some verses, okay? Second Peter chapter one, look at verse nineteen. You you need this for your Bible study. You write these things down, and, and you can have it. Second Peter chapter one, look at verse nineteen, quickly, so we can uh, leave, <laughs> so they can they can clean. Revelation. If you start Revelation, you go backwards. Revelation, Jude, third, second, first John, second, first Peter, second uh, Peter chapter one. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Praise God for that. The prophecies of the Bible teach us it's a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Uh, we could preach a whole night on that phrase right there. You, you would do well to take heed to the word of God. In fact, I think I will preach about that next week. Amen. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the, notice the word, day dawn and the day star Arise in your heart. This is all a picture of Christ. He's like the day star, the sun that rises. He would come to this earth to resurrect. The day dawn and the day star shall arise in your hearts. Look at Luke 179 again. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Go to Matthew chapter four. Let's, we just gotta run these verses. Matthew 4, look at verse 14. Luke 179, Zacharias prophesies to, that that the day star, the day dawn, would visit us. And what would he do to give light to them that sit in darkness? and in the shadow of death, Matthew 4 verse 14, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Here's another prophecy for you, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. This is referring to the fact that Christ went there and ministered there. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So uh, Zechariah says that he he comes to give light to them that sit in darkness and in that are in the shadow of death and then matthew tells us that jesus went and preached in zebulon and if and the people which sat in darkness saw great light referring to jesus and to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death light is spraying up all of these are references to the lord jesus christ go to galatians back if you can go to galatians 1 and luke chapter 1 and 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 uh let me, let me just show you uh this last thing real quickly but let me just say this about the light I'm a fundamentalist. I don't know if you know that. I'm a fundamental Baptist, and I'm not ashamed of it either. And I'm all for fundamentalism and fundamentalist. But let me just explain something to you. Sometimes we as fundamentalists get known for our rules, and I'm out against rules. I'm all for rules. How we dress and how, how long your hair should be when you're a lady and, and, or how short it should not be and how short it should be when you're a man. I'm all for that. And I'm all for teaching those things and preaching those things. I'm not against it. I'm all for teaching that young people should be pure, that it's not good for a man to touch a woman that he's not married to. I'm all for for teaching separation. I'm all for it. I'm for it. I think it's right. I think it's good. Then we've lost it in fundamentalism today. But let me just say this. You wouldn't have to have so many rules if we could teach our people, like we talked about this morning, to just get a high view of God. Amen. See, if, if you had a high view of God, if you actually cared about God and what God thinks, nobody would have to tell you, now, now sit six inches apart, six inches apart. I'm all for making them sit six inches apart. In fact, I think six inches isn't apart enough. <laughs> but instead of having these young people, we got to sit six inches apart. You know, if, 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 if you actually had a high view of God, I'm not doing what I have to do. I'm doing what I want to do because I love the Lord Jesus Christ. See, here's what we need. We don't need rules. We need light. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I want to tell you parents what we need to be doing with our children. Yes, let's teach them rules. Let's give them regulations. Let's give them rules. Let's, Let's do that. We need to do that. You should do that. But more than that, see, one day they're going to grow up, and they're not going to be under our rules. And what we need to teach them is to walk in the light of the of the, of, of the Word of God and of Jesus Christ, to follow the light, to have a high view of God, and to do what's right because they love the Lord. I want you just notice. We'll finish up here in Luke chapter one, look verse eighteen. And the child grew, referring to John and waxed strong in spirit. That word wax is an archaic word. It means to grow or to increase. The Bible tells us that the child grew and he waxed. He he grew strong in spirit. I want you to notice this. And was in the desert to the day of his showing unto Israel. The Bible tells us something interesting about John is that when he was born, of course, he grew physically, He waxed in spirit, he grew spiritually, but the Bible tells us that he was in the desert. He was in the desert to the day of his showing. Of course, John the Baptist is going to come on the scene 30 years from now. He's going to begin his ministry and begin to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. But from the time that we're reading in the end of Luke chapter 1 to the day of his showing, when he came out uh, as a preacher and began his public ministry, the Bible tells us he was in the desert. What's interesting is that there's a theme, and i like to show it to you real quickly tonight. There's a theme throughout the Bible about people who God mightily used being in the desert. Let me show it to you real quickly. Go to Galatians chapter one, look at verse 15. Here's he, we have Paul. Paul is uh, talking about his own testimony, Galatians 1.15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, that's a reference to the fact, Paul is referring to the fact that God had a plan and a purpose for him for him from his mother's womb, talked about that this morning, the sanctity of human life, and called me by his grace... To reveal a son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. That's what Paul was called to do—to be a missionary, an evangelist—to preach Jesus among the heathen. Immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. He says, "Look, when I got saved," Paul said, "When, when, when Jesus appeared to me on the Damascus road, and then I went into Damascus, and three days later, Ananias shut up and preached the gospel to me, and I got saved." He said, "When that happened, he said, immediately I did not confer with flesh and blood, because Paul told us is telling us in Galatians that he had this meeting with Peter and with John and with James and with the apostles, and he had." This meeting, but he tells us, before I did that, before I went and and tried to confer with flesh and blood, he said, because of course Jesus appeared to him, and Jesus sent Ananias to get him saved. Verse 17, he says, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, he says, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. Paul says, Before I went to Jerusalem to talk to Peter and James and John, he said, I went to Arabia. What's he saying? He said, I went to a desert. How long was he there? I don't know. He says, after three years, he went to Jerusalem. We know that he went to Jerusalem shortly after he'd been in Damascus. Maybe he was there for three years. I'm not sure. But we know this he was in the desert. It's interesting that John was used mightily of God, and the Bible tells us that he was in the desert till the day of his showing. And then Paul was mightily used of God, and we're told that before he went to confer with flesh and blood, before he went to commune and have fellowship with other believers, he went into Arabia. He went to the desert. Let me give you another one real quickly. This is the last one, I promise. Exodus 3, look at verse 1. Genesis, Exodus, never believe a preacher, okay? (laughs) Ex- oh, that's a joke, okay? Some of you are going to be like, you said. <laughs> Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he out the flock, notice this, to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. The life of Moses is divided into three sections. The Bible tells us he lived for 120 years. The first 40 years were spent in Egypt. The last 40 years were spent leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. But there was a middle section of Moses' life when he left Egypt before he went back for the children of Israel. The Bible tells us he spent 40 years in the backside of the desert. Jesus started his ministry. Remember when we read about the birth of Christ? First thing he does Goes to the desert. Before, before he begins officially his ministry, he goes to John. He gets baptized. John declares him, behold, the Lamb of God will take away the sins of the world. And then the first thing he does is he goes to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. There's something about the desert. You say, what does the desert represent? It represents solitude. Do you understand that you and I, I wonder if some of the lack that we have as Christians today is that we're just a little too connected. You, we, we just have, a, we, we have too many distractions. Your, your, your phone is just too distracting. There's too many people to talk to, too many people to look at, too many people to think, th- things to see. And I'm just here to tell you that there's something about, God tells us there's something about getting out in the desert alone with God. Amen. He did it with Moses. He did it with John the Baptist. He did it with Jesus. He did it with Paul. And I wonder if you and I would take time every day to just shut off the computer, shut off the phone, turn everything off, just get alone with God in the backside of a desert spiritually. If we would get to know God and have more access to God and have the power of God, because it just seems to me like the people that God used mightily, they learned to get away with God. Luke chapter 1. Look at verse sixty-six. Now we're actually done. I, I, this time, I'm not lying to you. Luke one sixty-six, and all they that heard them laid them up, laid them up in their hearts, saying, "What manner of child shall this be?" Notice the last part of verse sixty-six. And the hand of the Lord was with him. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want God. I want God to say that about my life, that the hand of the Lord was with him. That's going to require you and I getting in the desert, getting alone with God, getting alone with this King James Bible, understanding that it is the word of God, reading it, memorizing it, loving it, applying it, doing what it tells us to do, that we might have the power of God in our lives. Let's bow our heads and I will pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray you would encourage all of us. To spend more time with you, to get alone in the desert by ourselves, shut off all the distractions, spend time with God. And match the name of Christ. We pray. Amen.